a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. everyone and welcome to today's episode on the menopause and cancer podcast i hope you're okay loving being here week in week out and it's absolutely brilliant to get to speak to so many amazing people on the podcast today's topic was chosen by one of you amazing listeners i had a message i think on one of the social media channels and a message said danny if you could talk about secondary cancer and menopause, that would be amazing. And I sat on this request for a little while because I didn't quite know how best to navigate it. I think I now know how best to navigate it, which doesn't mean it makes it easier. But one way I know is I need to address it from different angles and bring in different speakers for you. Today, I'm bringing you in the amazing Emma Campbell, who is a motivational speaker, author, and columnist. And she will talk us through her own personal experience. She goes under the Instagram handle Limitless M and Limitless she is. I think she's amazing and I'm so honoured to speak to her today. And in the following weeks and episodes, I will bring in experts who can talk to us about secondary cancer, the management of the menopause with a secondary diagnosis from different angles so that we can cover it in the usual podcast style, from not just one point of view, but from different points of view. But back to my podcast guest today, Emma is a long-term cancer survivor. She's all about resilience, finding gratitude, and building connections. And she does so in a really amazing way because she is so honest. And every time she pops up on my screen, I listen to everything she has to say. I read every one of her words because there is so much wisdom and truth and love and compassion in what she has to communicate that it's just infectious. I also know, and I can imagine that the conversation I'm having with Emma today might be very triggering for some of you. Some of you are navigating secondary cancer diagnoses. You're in the model of menopause. And I'm going to try and find out from Emma was menopause ever men mentioned to her? Is it important even when you've had a secondary cancer diagnosis? Or in the grand scheme of things, does it not matter if you've got some of the symptoms? But I try and find out from Emma how she's navigated this, her life, being a single mum to four young children while she was undergoing active treatment for cancer. And yeah, she's a force to be reckoned with and a wonderful, wonderful soul. So I'm super excited and, yeah, just giddy with excitement, really, to welcome in Emma Campbell. 
Good morning, Emma. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. We've had a little chat about our children, haven't we? <laughs> the joys of being a multiple mum. <laughs> Twin We're both triplets for me. <laughs> that's it. We're both sat here with a cup of tea on a Tuesday morning. And I'm really delighted to be speaking to you because I've been following you and your Instagram shenanigans and your beautiful words and your wisdom for years now. Thank you. And so thank you for joining us and for all of the amazing community that we've built up here on the Menopause and Cancer podcast. Emma, I'd like to go straight in with my first question. Talk me through how much or how little you knew about menopause when you were first diagnosed with cancer, when you were diagnosed again with secondary cancer and what menopause ever meant to you. And then a bit later, I'm going to ask you about your journey in more detail, but let's start with that. Okay. Well, when I was first diagnosed, I was 39. And so I hadn't given menopause any kind of thought at all. I remember being told, oh, your periods will stop with the chemo they'll probably come back who knows and that was pretty much the extent of it I would say and sure enough they stopped I was so kind of caught up in the treatment in what was going on managing it all you know managing my six-month-old baby triplets and their big brother as a single mum. I was in this kind of you know it was on the front line of everything so the menopause and periods were the least of it, to be honest. And actually, as in some ways, it can feel like a relief sometimes, can't it? It's like, oh, great, no periods for, for a few months. And then I remember, you know, after that initial year of very full-on treatment, at some point they came back and, and that, that was it. And it really wasn't until, yeah, the secondary diagnosis at the end of 2014 began treatment at the beginning of 2015. So I've been on treatment ever since. And... Ah, oh, now as we're talking, again, my again, my period stopped, and at that point, of course, I was five years older. They might come back, they might not, and I just thought, well, they won't come back. They won't come back this time, and they did. And then I was in, I was put on Zolodex, which is the you know because my my um, cancer is very hormonally driven, so I was put on the Zolodex. If anyone knows the horrendous monthly needle in your tummy, the world's biggest needle. And so overnight I was I was put into a sort of permanent medically induced menopause. And I knew that would that would be it. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, really. So that was yeah, that was kind of like five 2016 ish, I think. And are you on these monthly horrible injections? Have you been on them ever since? Yeah, yeah I have. And it's a funny one because I feel, and it's funny because I was talking to a very good friend of mine yesterday who hasn't been through cancer, but has almost overnight suddenly found herself in the thick of whether it's perimenopause or menopause symptoms, every physical one. So hot flushes, low mood, weepy, night sweats. And she's giving me like a daily update. I can't believe it. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling that. And as we were talking, I sort of realized actually from a physical point of view, I think I got away with it if that's the right terminology quite lightly for me it was the emotional impact and the mental health sort of impact that hit me the hardest but yes I am still on those those injections horrible yes yeah 
And from when you look back to your first diagnosis and then to your second diagnosis, how much emphasis do you think any of your medical team, because I know we all have different, were saying this is going to be a thing or a big deal? No, I don't remember. Um, and I had, uh, and I'm always hesitate before saying anything negative because I've had such a, I've had, I've been so fortunate with all of my healthcare and 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 the, the team around me. You know, I've been at two different hospitals and it's, I've felt so fortunate in that regard but I have to say there was never a conversation about menopause there was never a conversation about it was just very much almost like tick the box one one sentence oh yeah this will happen your ovaries will shut down your periods will stop bang yeah that that was it and it's interesting even I don't even think of that and it's only as you're asking me that it really hits me that that needs to change that really needs to change because you're kind of you're just it's just another thing that you're left to deal with you know so much and one of the things I talk so passionately about or I feel so passionately about as someone living with cancer or living in the long term is the emotional impact because that's you know and it's all very well to kind of you know list all the physical uh, manifestations but gosh you know yeah so many more conversations about that sort of feeling of being hit by a truck mentally and emotionally Uh and I wish with everything you've said and your medical team said, this is what's going to happen or it might happen. And if you feel, I just want there to be an addition to that sentence and the yeah. addition could just be two or three sentences and they could be. And if you feel you've got real severe changes in your mood or you've got a dry vagina, please come back to talk to us because many things can be addressed. There I say almost easily especially if they're, they're physical perhaps a bit more difficult if they're mental but yeah. also for us to know that it's normal if we experience those symptoms Absolutely. because then we feel it's more normal to go and speak to someone yeah and especially if you are that little bit even if it's in my case probably only five years earlier than I might have embarked on a menopausal symptoms you know you, you uh, there was no one else going through it there were no conversations in my world about about that I felt very much kind of it was a very internalized ad- adjustment and experience I didn't and it's again only now as I look from the sidelines via Instagram and stuff and thank god there are so many conversations happening but they're they're overdue conversations and and that's why it's so wonderful what you know the space that you've created because when you hear all of the other conversations that have, have, have happened over the last couple of years, three years on social media, did you always feel included? To be honest, I feel like it's never been, I think, almost, I, I almost feel like I've not, still now, I've not really given the menopause, I haven't given it a huge amount of thought. It's just something that I know has happened and it's another thing that I've just sort of adjusted my life around. And I think if I'm honest, because I've had so many other big things to continually, you know, kind of face. And, you know, I had a third diagnosis in 2019 and, you know, four kids at home. It's, it's been a lot. And so I think I've almost just thought, Oh, well, that's, it is what it is. And I don't, I'm not a fan of that saying at all because sometimes it feels like it can diminish an, an emotion or an experience, but it was almost like I I didn't really feel like I, in, in my mind, it was very simple. It was like, but I can't take HRT. There's nothing I can do. I did start antidepressants. You know, I've been on a low dose of sertraline ever since, because I remember, you know, I think 
within a day of that first Solidex, because I think they put me on, I if I was on Letrozole, but I then went on the, once the Zolidex, the first thing the Zolidex injection happened, it was almost like overnight I was plunged into what felt like a real sort of chemical depression. And I'm not, I wouldn't want anyone to feel nervous if they were about to start Zolidex, because that's just the way I, it just, it was almost like everything just hit me emotionally and mentally. And I remember sort of being on the phone to my sister it sounds so melodramatic now, but sort of wailing, sobbing down the phone and almost kind of like slumped again. I mean, I just felt like I'd lost my mind. and Out of it. Yeah, yeah. it really hit me. But I've always been like that. I remember taking the, the pill in my early 20s very briefly and I had to come off it within 10 days, you know. So I think mm. I'm very hormone sensitive to that kind of thing. But I did make the decision, having resisted it for a very long time, to um, take some antidepressants because... Well, there's, a, there's chemical things going on here that I can't control and I need to I need to get some balance and some sunshine back and there are a couple of things I'd like to unpick from what you've just said in your last paragraph almost and, and, <laughs> yeah. yeah and that's so important because you're the first person who lives so beautifully and share so beautifully with secondary breast cancer that I've had on the podcast and I really wanted to know what the difference is in when we deal with menopause in that situation and it's so interesting that you say actually I've got so many other really bigger things to sort of combat on a daily basis of course it's not going to be your priority and that's fundamental it's it is what it is isn't it it's a funny one because actually Again, it's, we were talking about it before we started recording. It's like, when, um, when do you, how do we prioritize the issues in our lives? And actually now looking back, yeah. you know, the impact, I mean, my sadly now my, my husband and I have, are not together anymore, but I remember the impact, you know, the instant impact, my libido just shut down. Of course. You, know, like you talk about the dryness, the total lack of desire, the feeling of, of course. confidence, the sleep and all and all of that and actually now I think gosh I didn't know where to look to kind of get help with that I didn't know how to turn that switch back on in my brain of, of feeling of desirable or feeling like you know that libido dial and I wish now and I probably you know I wish I'd prioritized it a little bit more but again you've got it's like somehow then you do talk it's, to we know that every family every mother parent whatever in every other house is dealing with cancer or no cancer is dealing with kind of overwhelmed tired juggling a million plates so again you somehow put it down to just well this is just what life's like or you know we fall into bed knackered and we we roll over and you know and actually I think gosh I wish I'd um it's like I didn't make the time I think what I'm saying in a not very concise way I didn't make the time to try and get more support or look for solutions. And that is putting the onus onto you. Yeah. yeah. But I'd like to split that responsibility yeah. between you and your healthcare team. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone out there is listening who is a healthcare yeah. professional, I think this is a really valid uh, learning for all of us because yeah. you have been pushed off a hormonal cliff. Yes. And that drop is extremely deep. Yes, it really and is. The second thing I wanted to unpick is that you said, well, a new HRT wasn't an option for me. And so there was nothing I could do. And that is the other thing that we really need to unlearn. And it's it takes a little bit of time to unlearn because when we address all of your symptoms separately, 
some of them can be helped. Exactly. Not put yeah. away and not for us to have the best quality of life because we know that is not the right expectation. But yeah. even with a vaginal moisturizer routine or perhaps vaginal estrogen, if consulted with your oncologist, See, intercourse can yeah. be a bit more comfortable after uh, a yeah. time with antidepressants. And so different things helping yeah. us. And actually you're right. Cause that, that was the other thing as well. You, you introduce however, you know, like I said, it was low, you know, low dose of an antidepressant, but that knocks that has its own side effects as well. And yeah. they're not dissimilar in lots of ways, you know, and actually you're right. I think if I'm honest, I, I probably knew that if I delved a bit deeper though and, and read, and again, I'm making it sound like it was all my responsibility, but I could have, I could have looked for complementary, you know, or, or not alternative, but, you know, complementary alternatives or got some kind of holistic, help but I just it again overwhelm I feel like I've spent so much of the last decade in a state of overwhelm that I end up ended up just sort of shutting it out as an issue yeah and I wonder if someone who is a healthcare professional has really looked us in the eye and said this is going to change you mm. those monthly injections might not seem like loads I hear it all the time women say to me Danny I'm only on tamoxifen now it's only one little white pill a day mm. it can be life changing in how we feel and function and it needs addressing because otherwise we feel there's something wrong with us and we shouldn't be quite so bad and we should be feeling better and we should be a better mum and we should be have more energy and we shouldn't collapse into bed and actually you've just made me think as well and if you add a cancer diagnosis into the mix but you you're fortunate enough to be in remission stable or you know then you've got the that ridiculous kind of though well I I mustn't complain about the menopause because look I'm here I'm alive and it's you know we that's another thing that that as a someone who's survived or surviving cancer and sort of life is got some kind of normality to it you feel that really I I the we set the bar very low don't we because we think well what you know I'm I'm here and I aren't I lucky and therefore I better just put up with this and this and this and this and that's yeah that's not okay yeah okay so now let's give all of our listeners a little bit of context to your story, because I went straight in with talking about the menopause. But when you were first diagnosed, you had four little ones, right? Yes. So you had triplets. Yeah, they were six months old when I was um, first diagnosed and their big brother was six. And um, what was your diagnosis? It was, I mean, I'd I'd had several years of um, secondary infertilities and recurrent miscarriage. So I that I had one round of IVF and and ta-da, you know three oh. three babies, which was a magn- magnificent miracle, but a kind of terrifying one as well. But so my the lump I'd always had in my breast that I'd had checked years earlier began. I remember during the pregnancy, and obviously again you go through fertility treatment, you're being pumped through, you know, it's with so much. My and by the time the the pregnancy was confirmed, my hormone levels were just kind of off the scale you know I think we knew that there was definitely more than one baby there and I became aware of this lump sort of had disappeared I couldn't feel it anymore it'd been a very hard small lump and actually what it had turned into was a five centimeter tumor so which was already there was lymph node involvement so her to yeah invasive breast cancer so immediately embarked on they shrunk they gave me chemo first to shrink it I had a brilliant, fantastic response 
and then I had a mastectomy, you know, lymph node removal, reconstruction, radiotherapy, and then spent a year on, or however many, 18 months on Herceptin before then just being on tamoxifen, just, but being on tamoxifen until my recurrence in 2014. And how, I mean, I'm a twin mummy and my eldest was two Mm. when they were born. It's such a whirlwind of a time. Mm. But you were also a single parent, weren't you? Yeah, Um, yeah. yeah, How did you manage going through treatment and bracing? I mean, it is, um, I don't want you to tell me it's because I'm amazing. I just genuinely want to see how does one manage? Because we had my mum and my dad and Tim's parents helping. We had so many people helping and we hardly scrape by like yeah I think um we all manage because we have no choice but to manage I mm. was going through you know it was a horrific breakup um it was very traumatic and yeah I mean it was it was the worst kind of breakup in terms of emotional safety and and you know it need it needed to sort of come come to an end so I was incredibly lucky. So I didn't, ha- I didn't have a partner that, you know, that was inputting in a way that would have been ideal, but I did have, and I do have family support and what one, you know, wonderful things happened. Like, you know, one of the school mums drew up, got everyone together, drew up a rotor of help. And so it would be that kind of, right, we're dropping off a lasagna on Tuesday night. Right. I'm in supermarket. What do you need? And I just remember um, this particular friend Katie who had taken charge of the rotor saying to me what before cancer halfway through the, the pregnancy and she's a mum of four and I went round to her house and <laughs> oh my god how am I going to manage she said just say yes to every offer of help and that I never forgot that and because mm. we all find it hard I find it very hard to ask for help but I think I have got that has taught <laughs> yes to offers of help and that's why as well when people say oh, what can I say to someone who's newly diagnosed just do things for them. Don't wait to be asked, you know, because we all struggle with that, don't we? So I had a lot of people, I was in a, you know, top floor flat at the beginning and it was all very, it couldn't have been more sort of unsuitable for, you know, babies, but um, lots of people coming in, but the nights essentially I was, I was on my own and it was, it was torturous. I mean, I was, I, again, I don't, I shudder to think of that time. I'm probably, there's probably an element of PTSD really around that time. But yeah. I was, I did have, I had friends and family who were there for me. Absolutely. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was an incredibly hard time. And did you feel after that and after the active treatment that you were able to recover? Did you feel your body recovered quicker than your mental health? Or yeah. do you feel there sort of, there was a synergy in how you recovered? Or I physically recovered really well, you know, mm. um, it's amazing once the chemo gets out of your system, how, you know, within a few weeks, chemo wise, you'll feel, I mean, obviously it takes months to kind of rebuild. And, but I remember sort of feel, feeling the chemo leave my system, you know, that laughter, that yeah. last session. And, you know, one particular day, I remember the door, the door knocking and it was the postman or something, but rather than sort of like one step down the stairs, one step down the stairs, I remember sort of realizing that I'd slightly bound down the stairs. It was like, oh my goodness. Obviously, mastectomy wise, that took, ages and mm. like that but emotionally I was a wreck for a long long time that's been my that's been my biggest battle even though I'm not a fan of that word it's been my biggest yeah challenge has been the emotional 
impact. I just, I just was convinced that I was going to, I just was crippled by the fear of recurrence. And as a single parent in a continually sort of quite volatile situation, I've, you know, I just was desperately scared that I wasn't, I was going to die. And if my cat to me, my cancer, if my cancer came back, I would die and it would yeah. all happen very quickly and that would be it. And my, my babies would be, you know, on so their that, own. That, cons- that consumed me for years, you know, and it took reaching a rock bottom, uh, you know, mentally to really begin to sort of step on that path of shifting my mindset, which is what I guess what I try and share online a little bit. And Which we're definitely going to get to. I, I want to emphasize and really highlight your honesty there because a thank you for being so honest because again if we sort of unpick that I sometimes speak to people who are seven years down the line from their primary diagnosis and they still feel like that and because healing is never linear and never straightforward it is okay if we feel like that because if you do you do and yes we can have help and look at it and but if you do you do and I remember, because we talked about that earlier, now looking back at some of our pictures from when the kids were little, two, three and four, I've made these picture books for them, but I can't remember being there, although I'm in some of the pictures. But it's like my mind was split in two and I was busy. I had the twins on and they were like little tomboys, but I had them on scooters scooting to prime, not not even primary school. That was nursery. They were scooting off and my four-year-old was scooting off and so I was really busy because people often say just keep yourself busy take your mind off things and that didn't work for me because I was busy keeping them safe I couldn't have been busier getting them out the door ready ready for school at nine o'clock but at the same time half of my brain I had the Macmillan nurses walking in I could see them walking up into my second floor bedroom I could see me being a palliative care patient at the last few weeks and all the time that kept coming in that kept coming in catastrophic thoughts continually continually and at the same time I was in situations where I was quite happy to be in situations I was going to birthday parties I was having people over I was a very social person and at the same time all of these thoughts can come in and invade they were like invading my being so frustrating and so debilitating and, and again, so exhausting yeah. and it's exhausting emotionally exhausting and as time goes on it becomes harder and harder to vocalize that because oh gosh yeah on a year but it's like and people and with the best will in the world they'll kind of be slightly perplexed you know I used to kind of have memories of people kind of I don't but you're fine but you're fine and it's like and then you and that's not there that's the good fortune that they've might have to have not you know been touched by something so frightening but it's you just what I found was that as time wore on I just bottled it up more and more and then it impacted on you know and as a mum just not feeling present in my relationship not feeling present and consumed you know as consumed for me it became very compulsive it was quite OCD sort of in, in the way it manifests itself of checking, 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 you know, what's that mark on my, what's that little bit of, what's that mark on my chest? Is that, and then just obsessively, it would almost be like I'd be in company. I could be with you in your house having dinner or having a cup of tea. And I'd be thinking, right, when can I escape into the, into the bathroom? What's the lighting going to be like? So I can check in someone else's. I had this compulsive checking thing that went on for years and years and years I remember being on a plane on the way to my honeymoon my husband and 
all the way there on the plane when I should have been feeling like on cloud nine, literally, I just, I noticed, I sort of felt like my eye had caught the light in the airport mirror at Gatwick. And then I just was this, went into this frenzy of, I need to check, I need to check, I need to check, you know, and it's, I guess a psychologist would say, yeah, it's, it's control, it's, it's, but it's, and that's why I really did sort of reach a rock, a rock bottom, you know, and um, it's like, I can't live like this anymore. I can't, I can't live like this. This is, this is kind of, this is killing me, you know, yeah. and that thing of, yeah. I've described it as living as though I was dying, you know, and I wasn't, and I've, you know, I've, all, I've been fortunate enough from the very beginning to certainly never asked for a prognosis, but I've, I've done well so far, you know, I, I'm, you know, that could change in a heartbeat. I know that, but, you know, the, the level of fear and, and terror and paralysis didn't add up on paper with how well I was doing, you know? Yeah. Just, yes. Just, just couldn't. And That's... it's, just, it's, you know, I'm, I'm coming to the time of the year where there are sort of anniversaries of the second and the third diagnosis. And I do, my anxiety levels are ramping up a little bit as we head towards the end of the year. And I can feel that. And I'm just trying to keep an eye on them and you know mm. it's ongoing a, a couple of things that worst catastrophizing moment became your reality with your secondary yeah yeah diagnosis yes. and and there was new love which is also something mm. I want to ask how do you manage to even open up your heart but yeah, did, I mean, that did was... you continuously check and then suddenly you found something or how did that secondary oh, diagnosis it, come about? It was, oh gosh, it was coming towards the end of 2014 and I'd finally sort of, the babies, the babies had started reception. So my mm. eldest son had started secondary school. It was like, and I was heading into that fifth year, you know, I was four-ish years, four and, four and a half years since diagnosis. It was like, God, I've done it. You know, all of the, horrendous dramas with with their father had finally kind of a legal aspect had come in which meant that you know I felt I did feel sort of a real safety and I was like right I've done it I've done it and then and I was exercising I was starting to think wow this is my time now and this 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 rash you know appeared on my on my chest slowly but surely but I was exercising a lot and I was thinking is it am I is it the bra sports bra is it this is it that and alongside that, yeah, I'd started to sort of communicate with the man that became my husband. And um, so alongside this magical unfolding of what would turn into, you know, a, a marriage was it was like the world was opening up and the world was ending at the same time. Yeah. And actually, it was the day of my secondary diagnosis that the day after that we met for the very first time. But that day it was like December the 13th I think and it was a Friday evening and I'd been called at work from the chemo ward and it was like why are the chemo ward calling me I haven't been in the chemo ward for several years and my bloods had been done and they just had gone because I was at the point where I was only having bloods every six months and they had just gone you know skyrocketed so they called me in very gently and said oh we just need to redo your bloods Emma that was the darkest day because it was it felt so cruel because I felt like I was so on the cusp of a new life in, even in terms of just, like I said, the babies and the growth and the hard early years and nearly being five years. And, and then to add in the potential of a new love, which I'd never even 
believed was a possibility yeah. was just felt like the cruelest blow. And that was the darkest day I, I think I've, you know, certainly cancer wise that I've, I've had. And, but, you know, I, my relationship began, that was a huge, incredible sort of gift at that time. And I fortunately responded well. And suddenly there was a lot, there was a lot to look forward to, you know, and I had someone by my side at that point, which made an enormous difference because chemo the first time round, you know, I was I was really in a, in a very isolated place in terms of someone's arms around me or you know, of course, had to lean on someone. So that was, yeah. And somehow we got through that, and then diagnosis number three was at the beginning of 2019, and that actually was new lumps that I'd been ignoring because life was feeling good and mm. didn't want to burst the bubble and my book had come out and I was feeling like I oh can't you know and I could feel these lumps and I didn't say anything for months and months and months so you know I'm not a good example of of acting on symptoms I'm really not and yeah so the cancer had returned in my other breast and at that point we thought it was in my lung um, but that by some miracle turned out to be a benign tumor in my lung but yeah so here we are again <laughs> Well, no, I don't want to say here we are again, because I'm hoping that I'm not here again. I, I, you know, I'm on my targeted chemo. I've been on the same targeted chemo for nearly four years. And yeah. I count my blessings every single day that I've, you know, done so well on that. And one thing I wanted to go back on now is what was the book? So my book is a memoir. It's called All That Followed, A Story of Cancer Kids and the Fear of Leaving Too Soon, because that like we've said, that, oh. fear, that fear was was dominated. There's the story of, you know, the, the infertility, the triplets, the single parent, the diagnosis, the, the incredible sort of friends and family support, the, the oh, yeah. acts of kindness. And then the love story of meeting my husband. But in amongst that was the, 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 you couldn't get away. Couldn't, I couldn't get away from the, the yes. anxiety and the fears. When, when did you have time to write the book, Emma? <laughs> well, do you know what? I'd always, it was a dream come true and I was approached to write it and it was just a dream come true. So it was the happy, you know, it was such a gift. I felt like I'd won the lottery just, just by being asked to write a book. So Wonderful. I found the time and it was, and I had, you know, again, people, you know, stepped in and said, right, we're here, we'll help, go off, go and, go and write. And my husband. How helped. wonderful. And do you think some of that writing is what you want to share with others? Because I know you you host oh, I, writing workshops sometimes. Yeah, and, and I'm still trying to write book two. And that's that's one thing I'm not I'm not managing to prioritize. I, I think it's just <laughs> overwhelmed, but I know I've got another book that's bursting to come out. And I yeah, I don't know any other way than to write very honestly. So I and I really and in a way that's why I love Instagram so much because with a hundred words, I can kind of try to encapsulate where I'm at and how I'm feeling and in as honest and authentic a way as I possibly can. And at the same time, I just want to show, I want to be an example of long-term survival because 12 years ago, I didn't think there was such a thing and I didn't know where to find such examples. And you know, I don't know what the future's gonna hold for me. I'm at the hospital tomorrow having chemo. I know every time I go, who knows, you know, what could, what could have emerged, but I've got this far and I just feel so strongly that if anyone's at the beginning of their journey, I always say uh, I was too afraid to look for the stories of hope because I was, I was so scared of the, the terrifying stories that it stopped me looking yes. at the ones. 
and it's only when you're ready that you that you kind of feel okay let, let me delve a little deeper into this community and see how so many others are coping you know maybe that maybe yeah. it's something from how they they manage uh, and and but you're so open aren't you on have you always shared your story openly or was there a time when you thought now I'm ready to become no. open and inspire others because every time I know you pop up say on my Insta and it's only Instagram like I know it's a social media platform but when I choose to open it up and delve in I'm looking forward to when you pop up because there's such raw honesty that I can resonate with a lot of what you say that it, it helps me feel oh yeah Danny you're not nuts it's it's no. normal someone else is is like that as well and yeah I mean I always felt I think I remember you know I'd always wanted to write so I've always journaled I've always been you know spent years sort of having a dream of writing and so and then I blogged I didn't know anything about social media I had a blog when the babies were first about a year just as I was coming through treatment for the first time round, everyone was having was blogging. Yes, I yeah. got a blog called Me and My Four, and it was, and I loved. It. I found it's that overused word. I found it so cathartic. You know, I blogged yes. every single day, and you know, I don't blog anymore because in a way Instagram's taken over. But that blog is still there. It's on my website. Yes, kind of a real diary of that time. Yeah, and then Cancer Research UK. I got involved with one of their charity walks after I'd finished treatment and as a result I ticked the box would you be happy to share your story and they rang me up and then I that sort of began the yeah of course I'm happy to talk about this if there's a way yes, I am yeah. and so that just that was the beginning of the real kind of like right yeah of course I'm happy to put stuff out there and then Instagram was the with a kind of big leap and I found mm. my kind of safe place there and obviously this year I've had a very very challenging year so I feel like oh my content has 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 not maybe not been as uplifting you know but I still have to be true to myself in a yes. way as I can you know I'm not going to be it... happy happy when I'm when I'm not you know and it, I don't think it is the uplifting people are looking for mm. it's the honesty mm. that is the most authentic isn't it because yeah. I remember in my early days of my diagnosis that I thought, well, unless I think positive now, something bad is going to happen. So I really felt that if I, the pressure, the sheer pressure that I had all of this under my control, which of course it isn't, it's out of our control. It's no one's fault, whatever happens. And we have so little say in, in, in all of this. And so I don't think it's the positive inspiration we need rather than the honest no, I, no, I think you're up. I totally, totally agree. I think I, like you say, I, I put that pressure on myself. I think because I, you know, when you're kind of, when life's ticking along and you do feel that you can access all of those tools that you feel so strongly about the mindset, the gratitude, and then kind of life, you know, you have your, a tower moment and suddenly you're, it's almost like a dark night of the soul and you're questioning everything that you've ever said and you lose faith in how life can be. I think yeah. I felt almost like, yeah, I suppose I felt the opposite of limitless, you know, in terms of yes. limitless M kind of handle. It's like, <gasps> and I never, it wasn't, and that that name change, because I used to be called M plus four, you know, M and the kids, M and the kids. And that conscious decision to change my handle wasn't because I felt, oh, I'm so limitless. It was more as a daily reminder mm. to me and hopefully to to others that essentially we we all have limitless potential. So that yeah. was that was the kind of thought behind what that word means to me. 
Yeah. And how do you protect yourself from this also social media space? Because sometimes we have no choice then. We are seeing pictures, we're seeing stories. Mm. Sometimes they're so close to home. Sometimes they don't end as well as we hope they would end. It's also a really sort of space that can drag us in. Have you got any advice Um, for anyone else? Definitely where, I mean, I still now I'm very... And I'm so full of admiration for so many accounts online that do so much more than I do in terms of advocacy and kind of, you know, and, and the, the reminders to know your body and to check and to kind of, and, and I, I have so much, I mean, all of, of, of many of those accounts. I personally have, have felt that I can't, I can't, be one of I can't be that person because I need there is an element of I have to protect my own again my mental well-being and yeah it could sound quite selfish I guess but in some ways it's like wherever I can I try to minimize the part cancer plays and I'm very aware I'm at a point at the moment where where it's not too difficult to do that you know it's always because physically I'm I'm doing okay and things have been stable consistently and I I have to find a way of turning the volume down as I describe it so Absolutely. for me that will be supporting you know I honestly I, I feel so much love and respect and gratitude for the women in particular that I follow and think are wonderful and then I just have to slightly I don't go down too many rabbit holes and you know it's been a very difficult year with losses and it hits all of us and it's absolutely devastating and I think now what I have to just remember is and it's hard to even talk about because you know to talk in a well that's not me that's them these are people that you know friendships and and it's devastating but we somehow have to remember it's coming back to the now okay right now I don't know what the future holds I don't know what I'm going to hear I don't I know how quickly something can shift in terms of health but right now this minute this is where I'm at and I have to, in particular with like Deborah, you know, Bal Babe, you know, who, who died in June, the feeling of, I have to, I have to not do her a disservice or other, you know, other people who would have done anything to be here. And I have to try to combat that fear and let and allow, make room for the joy and room for the, the moments and that's what I was never able to do I was joyless for years I was joyless and I, I it's heartbreaking to think you know healthy babies healthy me but I was joyless and I and I've had a lot of very joyless moments this year you know for other reasons but I'm I have to keep gently nudging myself back to what I have in my life you know and what right now this minute is is there for me and is okay and and it's all about it's it's surrounding yourself with people that emotionally can hold you that you feel safe with we don't have to follow we can you know being drawn towards the accounts that that make us feel safe you know and for anyone listening who might not know or might not follow you Deborah was a very close friend of yours and she had the handle bow babe and she became somewhat famous um, with her inspiration and her late and her sheer determination to live as well as she could 
Yeah, she she taught me, she had a huge, I've said this before, she had a huge part in my sort of mindset shift um, because I you couldn't be in her company and not somehow think, bloody hell, you know, if <laughs> if if she can dig deep, if she can show up, if she can find laughter and belly laughs in the most horrendous circumstances or frightening of circumstances, then surely I can. And so you know, I think she touched all so many of us. And for those who were lucky enough to actually, you know, got to know her, I she just had a huge impact and she she always will. I mean, she's there. It is a it's a corny line, but it is a kind of almost what would Debs do? What would Debs do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what would Deborah do? But well, we know we know Deborah found a lot of joy in dancing, yes. <laughs> which I know isn't for everyone. But no. um, what bring what brings you joy? Gosh, oh, that's a really good question. What brings me joy? I mean, the obvious, you know, friends and family, eight my my children goes without saying. So let's just put that. But but in terms yes, of yes, yeah. You know, so we we know that. But I think what brings me joy is when I'm in a place where I feel anticipation, excited anticipation for what's coming next and again that that means that I'm in a place of optimism a place of hope a place of trust a place of of safety rather than fear because when you're living in a place of fear there's no room for there's no room for joy there's no room for optimism because you're just like (gasps) and actually I know that when I connect with joy it will often be maybe you know halfway through a run or at the yeah. end of the run and I and I, I get home and I think oh, I did it my body look at my, my body's working for me and <laughs> I can take on the day and I feel I do I feel kind of invincible in those moments mm. but gosh I mean you know they come and go but joy for me really is is inspirational conversations feeling in touch with my own potential knowing honestly sh- and sharing my whether I'm talking at an event or feeling like sounds sounds genuinely feeling like I'm possibly making a difference in my own small way yeah living my truth I just I just I want to live an open-hearted you know bold big expansive life and I hope that you know the months ahead are, are easier than the months that have gone have been but I'm you know slowly but surely just trying to reconnect with those feelings of of there is joy out there and, and I'll feel it again soon I will feel you know yeah. the, the real kind of you know because like it's been a it's been a heavy year for lots of people you know there's been a lot of sort of challenge this year and a darkness creeps in and then you just forget you lose sight you lose sight of of, of the bigger life. picture yeah yeah and have you got another writing workshop coming up or do I you will what's have, happening I, will you yeah, I I'm always a bit erratic with them so they're always a bit ad hoc but on my bio in my Instagram there's always a link tree and a link to workshops so I'm about to start scheduling some new ones it might be that they um start again in next year yeah they'll always pop up it's just always a little bit intermittent but yeah so if anyone is listening to this thinking gosh Emma I find her so inspirational because I know you want to make that impact or or it brings you joy and you definitely do because I'm only one person that followed along quietly for many years and you are totally that sort of little little glimpse of light on dark days so 
personally, I want to thank you. But also if someone thought, I'd like to connect with Emma, but I haven't ever journaled or written, is that a problem? Oh, absolutely. So the workshops I run, uh, it's it's a form of expressive writing. So it really is free flow, journal style, kind of, you know, just I, I provide lovely, gentle prompts and you just write and you keep your pen moving and you don't go back and you don't edit and you don't worry about grammar or structure or and it's all about trying to sort of engage with another part of your brain silence that inner critic that will tell you what, what who do you think you are you're not a writer or that's rubbish or just, it's just for you you know what you're just getting your thought your thoughts thoughts down in a safe space and you might share them one day you might not but you're writing it's like you know dance as if no one's watching write as if no one's ever going to read the words and um you'll be amazed at what comes up and they can be really emotional sessions but in a very again there there's always a lovely combination of of again mainly women but obviously open to open to all and it's always just feels like such a sort of beautiful space and at the end we we connect and if anyone feels like sharing they can but otherwise it's just a lovely hour of um letting the pen lead the way is what I say because usually we or many people say I don't know what I could I wouldn't know even what to write about so because you give prompts I guess people give prompts and have the access yes. yeah and it and it connects us with the, the prompts help us unearth memory you know that because I remember when I was writing my book it's like, I can't remember I can't remember I can't remember and all it takes is one little nugget of a memory it could be the food you ate on a particular day or the, or a song you heard or or it, it'd be one tiny little pull on the thread of a memory and then suddenly you're you're off you know and it's it's connecting with the emotions um yeah it will take you back to that point and it is you know it can be very very helpful to you know I think it's always helpful to get our thoughts down and you inevitably if it becomes a practice you inevitably move through difficult themes that will come up and up and up in your life and you find the answers on the page I believe it's fascinating and actually speaking to you makes me sort of really go back to when I did my yoga teacher training and we dug deep into sort of different um, Sanskrit words and Buddhist culture different sort of cultures and and religions and we often talked about the expectations we have on life and and what we think makes a good and all-rounded life. And of course, that isn't what we think it to be because we think a life needs to be filled with joy and a a life needs to be filled with laughter and happiness and it needs to be pain-free and healthy. But actually, speaking to more and more amazing people just like you today and in the wider context, that isn't what life is about. Life is about all those things and a life is as worthy and as everything if we experience joy or the lack of joy if we have health or the absence of health if we have lots of laughter or months where we can't even turn the corners of our mouths up even a tiny little bit and all of that is life absolutely and it's expansion and it's it's growth and it's recognizing that it's contrast life is made up of contrast yeah you know it's only when you haven't been able to smile for weeks or months on end that when you catch having a you know with friends or a moment and you're genuinely laughing from your core you can then think oh I'm I'm here I'm not there I'm right now I'm here I'm not where I was and it's progress and then but there's never an arrival point you know there's no arrival point to life is there 
it's all the colors it's all the, the feelings and it's just allowing ourselves to navigate through and become more aware of when we know what we don't want we know what we do want so we slowly but surely define and shape and mold and create the life that we desire that's that's what I that's what I try to do and yeah. uh, and some of that can be so incredibly painful but it's all information you know um so in a way it's but certainly it, I I think we're here to experience everything and to yeah. expand and essentially come back to what really is important which is love and connection and living our own truth yeah thank you emma those are beautiful last words and um i'm going i've just brought up a poem that is one of my old 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 poems i have read for years and i've got a little printout as well but you've said it a few times, probably unknowingly, and it's a poem by Erich Fried, and it's called It Is What It Is. And you've mentioned it a couple of times. I want to just read it, if that's okay. Yeah. It is nonsense, says reasons. It is what it is, says love. It is calamity, says calculation. It is nothing but pain, says fear. It is hopeless, says insight. It is what it is, says love. It is ludicrous, says pride. It is foolish, says caution. It is impossible, says experience. It is what it is, says love. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank quite a lot of what you said sort of is wrapped up in yeah. this poem. Yeah. So thank you for sharing all of that with us today, Emma. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to, to talk to you and have such an important conversation. Thank you. Right, how are you feeling? Emma has left the conversation. I'm still sat here in the podcasting studio, headphones on, I'm in front of the microphone. I'm trying to wrap up this conversation and I've re-recorded and re-recorded this small blurb that I usually add to the end of my podcasts numerous times now because I just can't find the right words. But I think if I just speak from the heart, then Emma's conversation and her wisdom and how she shares things is filling me with so much hope that we can live well. And what does living well mean once we've been diagnosed with a secondary cancer diagnosis? Emma is the true example of what it means to be a long-term cancer survivor. And she shared from honesty, from her heart, she's given us her wisdom. And for those of you who found the conversation really triggering, then perhaps one thing that Emma said, we can take that as a reminder and sort of run with it a little bit. And Emma said, after a while, you stop talking about the demons in your head or these horrible worries that you might have or the anxious thoughts because after a while you think no one really is interested anymore you've survived you've come this far and a few months in or even a couple of years in no one really wants to know that you're still struggling with anxiety but let this be the reminder to change something if we can take anything away from this conversation today maybe do dare and be brave enough to open up to someone and say actually there are times where i still struggle 
with my fears or certain symptoms and and just to revisit being vulnerable and sharing and that doesn't need to be with many people that but that can be to one person that you're really close with because I feel it's really important we let people know how we're doing even many months after a cancer diagnosis or even years after we've been diagnosed with cancer just because we think the expectation is there that we should have moved on by a certain amount of time isn't the reality and if one thing I know is very much my truth is to share my reality, whether people like what they hear or not, whether people judge what I have to say or not, whether I worry how people might perceive what I have to say or not, is to come back to my truth and share my truth and what's going on for me. And gosh, isn't she wonderful, Emma? I'm so grateful I had to have this chat. And for those of you listening, affected, with a secondary cancer diagnosis or worried about a secondary cancer diagnosis. I think she's a shining light on what it means to be a long-term cancer survivor. Thank you, Emma. <laughs>